I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. So, yes, this is an irregularly timed episode, but I'm dropping it early because it's one of the most relevant ones I've ever done, given the circumstances. And to be clear, this isn't a real-time COVID-19 update. It's not about how to flatten the curve when, frankly, we're already playing catch-up. Rather, it's about trying to put some context around where we stand. It's about how levels of perceived preparedness can fall apart in the most tragic manners. It's about the political implications as pandemic preparedness becomes an unavoidable electoral issue in front of us. And make no mistake, it's also a powerful parallel that considers our preparedness, and response to issues like climate change ahead. It's worth highlighting from our conversation that little about this pandemic was unpredictable. Governments game-planned it. Politicians highlighted this threat as far back as George W. Bush. And we've been tested again and again by avian flu, SARS, MERS, Zika, and Ebola. It's why I'm excited to have my next guest, Dr. Amish Adalja, on the show. We go into context around pandemics, where we stand on COVID-19, the factors we need for better preparedness and stronger resilience, and the implications for how this may reset our policy and political expectations going forward. So I really want to thank Dr. Adalja for his time, trust, and insight. He's not only on the front lines of this crisis, both as a physician and policy advisor, but he also brings a refreshing clarity and frankness about the situation. Dr. Adalja is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He's a board-certified physician in internal medicine, emergency medicine, infectious diseases, and critical care medicine. A member of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Precision Medicine Working Group, Dr. Adalja has served on U.S. government panels tasked with developing guidelines for the treatment of botulism, plague, and anthrax in mass casualty settings, as well as care for infectious disease emergencies. Dr. Adalja is an associate editor of the journal Health Security. He was a contributing author for the Handbook of Bioterrorism and Disaster Medicine, and is published in such journals as the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of Infectious Diseases, and the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Amesh. It's really great to have you here. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so I, I want to start out by using your background, the fact that you really devoted your entire life as physician, researcher, and policy advisor on pandemic and infectious diseases preparedness to give some context for what COVID-19 represents relative to other pandemics and maybe kind of give a, a quick state of play picture of where we stand now as, as we record this on May the 6th. COVID-19 is probably the most challenging infectious disease emergency the world has faced since the 1918 pandemic influenza. What we've seen is an efficiently spreading respiratory virus engulf the world, causing lots of death, lots of disease, and massive, massive disruptions. What we're faced with is a virus that we have no antiviral for, that we have no vaccine for. And it is best understood as the result of Years of neglect. Pandemic preparedness is something that is not a priority for governments across the world, including the U.S. government. And this is 
the predictable result of that when you're basically playing catch up with a virus that can move very quickly because of its biological characteristics. And with all of the economic shutdowns occurring around the world, we're all paying the price for failure to prepare. Let's talk about that neglect and, and lack of preparedness, because I guess, you know, when you think about the legacy of pandemic preparedness, um, th- there's a certain degree of cognitive dissonance in, in terms of how things are playing out right now. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, 2019, the Global Health Security Index ranked the United States as first overall for pandemic p- preparedness and gave it a 98 out of 100 score in early detection and reporting. Um, but, you know, in fact, the narrative seems to go on much further back than that. We've probably all seen the clips floating around the Internet of of the Obama speech in 2014, where he talked about the need to establish domestic and international public health infrastructure around uh, pandemic threats. And, you know, even further back than that, in 2005, George W. Bush's speech on pandemic planning uh, seems to run through the similar list of what we're talking about now, detecting outbreaks, stockpiling antiviral supplies, and and, uh, surveillance plans. Um, You know, since then, we've had certainly a number of dry runs, SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika. And I guess what's also ironic is that in uh, 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services ran a simulation of a Chinese-born virus pandemic called Crimson Contagion. And to be clear, you know, it sounds like I'm picking on the U.S., but, but in fact, if you look at the U.K., which uh, also ranked number two within that Global Health Security Index, they also ran their own pandemic simulation called Exercise Cygnus, in 2016. So how do you reconcile, I guess, you know, this sort of rich narrative of, of, of talk around preparation and resilience with where we are now? It's really inexcusable because it's not as if this wasn't predictable. It's not as if we didn't have plans. It's not as if we didn't know what to do appropriately. But what we've seen is even if you have a very high rating in terms of pandemic preparedness, it doesn't mean anything if you don't have the political will to put those things into place. And there were mistakes made, for example, in the United States in terms of our testing protocol, the way testing was rolled out, the way that this was framed as a travel-related illness, even though we knew that this was an efficiently spreading respiratory virus that had been in China at least since November and likely was in more countries than just China. We knew that it had a spectrum of illness, including mild illness, yet our testing protocols did not allow for the testing of mild illness. So these were all really, to me, unfathomable mistakes that were made. And many of us in the field were talking to the press, talking to anybody that would listen, saying we're going to end up with an outbreak that's going to stress our hospitals because we're not taking these actions now, back in January when we should have. So I do think that what happens is that there is interest for some period of time in pandemic preparedness, and clearly it goes back uh, to the George W. Bush administration when we were faced with anthrax and faced with avian influenza scares, and then in 2009 with H1N1 during the beginning of the Obama administration, as well as Middle East respiratory syndrome as Ebola, Zika. All of that really gets people thinking about these types of problems, but when they fade from the headlines, it also fades from politicians' priorities, and you have this cycle of panic and neglect, and things don't get put into place and and they in the programs that are put into place get winded down and and get deprioritized and and predictably you see this type of thing happen so there's no excuse for example our strategic national stockpile being depleted after H1N1 and not being replenished these are major shortcomings in how we do things and although the United States might be the best in those ratings and the UK might be right behind it the fact is all countries are vulnerable and they are also going to be subject to political wins that may not favor pandemic preparedness 
because it's not something that the general public thinks about or demands or, or expects from their government. Hmm. Before we go into some of the structural factors, you know, like supply chains or even the kind of institutional side around agencies uh, and the policy side, can you give us some context for why in, in sort of past talks that I've listened to you, why you're a little bit more optimistic about the situation? I think it's sort of worth talking about the CFR, the case fatality rate, and, and, and trying to sort of put into context some of the numbers that are being thrown out there. We, we sort of started it you know, a two to 3%. Uh, and, and, you know, from, from, I guess, from your discussions, you're sort of thinking that it, it could be far lower based on, on some of the evidence coming out of, of Germany and, and South Korea. So the case fatality ratio is something that's been something, been something that's kind of hard to pin down. And the reason for that is that there was a severity bias in the data, that people that were getting tested were people who were presenting for care. So that's obviously going to give you a skewed example of what it's like to have this infection. And when you started to see places do more wider testing, including antibody testing, which we're doing now in some parts of the United States, you're seeing that many people have very, very mild cases. And some people don't have any symptoms at all. And you're seeing the case fatality ratio drop. So it's most likely, and, and this isn't something controversial or something that, I, just, that I'm just saying, it's likely around 0.5% in that range. So this isn't a cataclysmic out. Uh, a cataclysmic pandemic, like, for example, with avian influenza with a, a case fatality rate of, of 60% in the cases that we've seen. This is something that has a, a very low relative case fatality ratio. But the thing about this pandemic, and this is to not minimize it, is the fact that the population has no immunity to it. We have no antiviral against coronaviruses. So everybody that gets exposed to this gets infected. So if you even have 0.5% of a of a big number, that's still a big number. And that's why this is going to be a pandemic that, that is severe. And while it won't reach the 1918 level, it will likely be worse than the 1957 and 1968 influenza pandemics. And the, what I'm optimistic about is the fact that we are able to meet hospital capacity in the United States, even in some of our hardest hit areas like New York City, where there was a real concern that the hospitals might have to shift to what we call crisis standards of care and start rationing treatments. They didn't have to do that. So what I'm optimistic about is the fact that not every place in the United States, not every place in the world is going to be like New York City or like Lombardy in Italy or Wuhan. And and that we do have the ability to face this threat and be able to move forward. And, and it isn't one of the apocalyptic type of pandemics that many of us spend our time thinking about where the case fatality ratio is in the double digits. How early did this come up on your radar as something that could be more serious than, than most people were taking uh, account of? And, and since that time, I'm kind of curious how your conceptualization of a, an upper and a lower bound of this uh, case fatality ratio has sort of evolved since then. This came onto my radar in January. Uh, December 31st is when the Chinese government notified the World Health Organization of this outbreak. And I knew once I started to see data that was emerging in January that there, were, there was human-to-human -human spread going on, that there was this tendency to say every case came from the, the, the market, and there was this cluster of like over 40 people that all came from the market. It didn't make sense to me that it was all coming from the market, that there had to have been some human-to-human -human transmission going on. And if you look on my, on my blog post at that time, that's sort of what I was writing about, the fact that this is likely spreading in the community. This is likely going to be much more widespread than just this market in Wuhan. 
because it's a respiratory virus. And we know that the first case patient that they described was ill on December 1st, which meant he was infected in November. And that first case patient did ha not have any contact with the market. So that tells you he got it from another person, which tells you there was community spread going on in November. And basically, almost by definition, if you have a community spreading respiratory virus, it's going to be everywhere by the time you actually notice it. And it's not going to be something that can be contained in one part of the world. So it would be a significant respiratory virus outbreak. What I didn't think is that countries like the United States would fumble the response so badly that we end up in a situation where the only tool that we have left are these blunt economic shutdowns that basically have um, been enacted in a blanket fashion across the United States. I thought we would be much more able to use precise tools and track cases and identify those cases and, and, do contact, and do contact tracing and really delimit the spread. But I knew that this was going to be something that was, was very significant and that was not going to be containable and was going to challenge our hospitals and our response systems. I thought we would get it better, though. Hmm. Over the last couple of months, we've seen rhetoric typically out of politicians there's been a lot of talk around game changers uh, from antibody home testing kits to potential treatments and, and vaccines for antibody tests. There's the unanswered question about our ability to develop immunity. As you said, well, there are no vaccines to the uh, human coronaviruses. What's the likelihood that COVID-19 becomes simply the next seasonal coronavirus that we just frankly might have to be, you know, get comfortable living with and, 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 and instead focus on prevention. It's 100% likelihood. This is a coronavirus that has established itself in the human population. It's what we would say is endemic now. This isn't going to disappear in the absence of a vaccine. And this is the seventh human coronavirus that we've discovered. Four of those coronaviruses cause about 15 to 25% of our common colds. This is going to become the fifth community-acquired seasonal coronavirus. And it looks like it has intermediate severity. It doesn't have severity at the level of SARS or MERS but it clearly has more severity than the other four coronaviruses. And we are going to have to cope with this. And it's not something that, that's going to magically disappear with some amount of social distancing. This is something that's going to have to be incorporated into each individual on the planet's risk tolerance and, and their daily risks that they take. Because there's really no other alternative when you have a virus like this that's established itself in the human population. So people have to come up with a way to be able to live with this virus emits them. And for the vast majority of people, it's not going to be a threat because most people get mild illness, but there are going to be vulnerable populations that can have very high case fatality ratios. And those individuals are going to have to be very conscientious about the risks they take, their contacts. And, and that's, that's going to redound on the rest of society because it's going to be very difficult to have mass gatherings in the absence of a vaccine. There's still going to be a lot of encouragement of teleworking. People are going to naturally social distance because of this virus. And I think risk perception will change over time, and it is already changing in the United States as we see mobility numbers go back up. But it is going to be something that people are going to have to incorporate into the risk calculus uh, on a daily basis going forward. What do you think age says something about this and, and the fact that uh, particularly men are seem more, more vulnerable to this, and particularly the, the older generation? We know that for many respiratory viruses, that severity is highly linked with age. So with each advancing decade of life, the chance that you are going to end up hospitalized or have a severe case or die from a respiratory illness, whether it's the novel coronavirus, whether it's influenza, whether it's respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, 
that, that's what we are, we're kind of accustomed to. And this virus is following that type of pattern. The same is true with males and females. We do know that many respiratory viruses can be more severe in males. That likely has to do with the influence of relative amounts of estrogen and testosterone on the immune system. And it may be that testosterone has more of an inflammatory uh, bias in, its, in, in the way that it pushes the immune system. And this is something that um, we have to do a lot more research on to understand, but it's clear in the in the data that's emerging that males tend to be overrepresented over, over in severe disease. Let's switch lanes because I want to pick up on the point around testing and diagnostics. What do you think it means for, for capacity building in that respect? Labs and testing have always been in the U.S. a, a bit of a cottage industry given the mix of research, universities, and, and CIA certified test labs. Um, but they're invaluable for early detection. I guess one of the interesting anecdotes that I sort of found revealing about, uh, you know, the, the structure of the U.S. In, in this respect is that diagnostics represents only 1% to 2% of total healthcare spending, yet guides 80% of overall medical spending, which is incredible. So how did COVID-19 catch us so wrong-footed in the testing dimension? And what do you think needs to happen to create more resilience and preparedness in that fragmented lab space? Well, what happened was basically a self-inflicted wound when it comes to diagnostic testing with the coronavirus. The United States, as soon as we were notified of that novel virus spreading efficiently, began to think about diagnostic testing, but yet instead of using the WHO kit, decided to make their own. And in most cases, that would probably go fine. But for whatever reason, there was contamination. The CDC pushed out that test kit to the state health labs, and that was ineffectual because the test kit wasn't working properly, so they had to recall it. And what you basically had was a major, major bottleneck where the CDC was basically the only lab that could do diagnostic testing, creating major delays in turnaround time, disincentivizing doctors from all the bureaucracy of actually ordering the tests, having the state public health labs basically adjudicate who could be tested and who couldn't be tested. And it put us in a, in a situation where we were always playing catch up with this virus. Not only that, but when the public health emergency was declared, it paradoxically made it harder for university labs and private labs to make their own laboratory-developed tests, or LDTs, which we have for many different infectious diseases. They all were forced to go through the emergency use authorization pathway of the FDA. And that was very onerous and took time. And it, eventually, a bureaucratic fix was made, and we had big companies like Quest and LabCorp engaged. But that delay cost us precious time. And we were always behind the eight ball with this virus, trying to find cases, not knowing who had it and who didn't have it. And these were all not a failure of technology. This was a failure of the bureaucracy that was put into place when the public health emergency was declared and some resistance from the U.S. government to use the WHO test that was perfectly fine. And this is going to be one of the stories that we're going to have to tell about this pandemic because this pandemic, the pandemic, one of the failures of this pandemic, one of the original sins of this pandemic was the fact that diagnostic testing, which is undervalued but so crucial, really got the United States into a position where we are on the precipice of a new depression because of failures with diagnostic testing. Talk a little bit about the response and diagnostic turnaround times that you mentioned. I guess I'm trying to draw a parallel to the Ebola outbreak. Uh, you know, initially then there was a seven to nine day uh, waiting period for the results of lab tests to detect the virus um, through a combination of measures, uh, governmental, uh, private sector, even the military. That was shrunk down to a couple hours from what I know. How do we take or leverage that kind of learning into the situation we're in now? 
Well, I don't think that there's a technological barrier to having rapid test results and getting turnaround times down to minutes. And there are rapid tests that are available now. The question is scaling them, making sure that we have adequate supplies of nasal swabs and reagents to be able to use these. So I do think this is where we're headed with this virus and we're increasingly getting there every day we get closer to that. And I do think that people have learned how to, to, to make this type of technology. It's never been an issue that we don't have the diagnostic technology. It's the implementation that's been the problem. Hmm. You know, on that, on that policy approach and, and what's been successful and what hasn't, I mean, how do you take the view of, of sort of a top-down central, centralized approach, which has seemed to have proved successful in many other countries, uh, whether it's China, Singapore, or, or Germany, versus the more decentralized state uh, approach that uh, is prevalent in the U.S.? And I guess as, as a personal note, I, I was in Singapore in late January, and this is when the first outbreaks uh, occurred in, in, there. And I was actually surprised. It's only a city-state, but I was, I was just incredibly impressed with the measures that the Ministry of Health took in terms of transparency, in terms of sort of tracking, uh, and, and ultimately testing. I do think that some of the Asian countries are much more superior to the United States in their capacity to do case identification, isolation, and tracking. And it may be that they are smaller, that they have a more centralized government and a much more well-resourced health department. If you look, for example, in states, and I'm sitting in Pennsylvania, for example, not every county has its own health department. The state health department has to do some, has to kind of pick up the, the slack in some other counties where there, there isn't a health department. And most of our health departments are not well-resourced and can't even, can't even afford to hire people to do contact tracing and to be able to have a robust public health response. And much of that has to do, I think, not only with the fact that they're, they're not resourced, but they have so many other competing interests. You know, even if you look at the federal level, the, Center for, the Centers for Disease Control, it is a, it's a plural, centers. It's not just infectious diseases. It used to be called the Communicable Diseases Center. And its core function was infectious disease. But now they have so many other elements to what they do that their resources are spread thinner. And I do think it's important that we get our health departments at the federal, state, and local level in the United States focused on their core mission, which is infectious diseases, because that's when we need, need them the most. It's not so much about encouraging children to wear helmets when they ride bicycles or all of the other types of public health efforts that we need the government for. It's really when, when it comes to communicable infectious diseases. And I think that's something that you've seen in Asian countries excelling it. And for example, if you look at South Korea, they were hit hard with Middle East respiratory syndrome a couple of years ago, and they learned lessons, and they were really adept at dealing with this when it appeared in their borders. And we don't have that type of capacity in the United States or the will to do that. How do you think this resets our response to pandemics going forward? I know that's a big question, but I'm just wondering, how, how do you see the roles changing, I, you know, it becoming less centralized, there being non-governmental actors being a bigger part in, in the response. You know, I know to, I've seen the Rockefeller Foundation being pretty active in terms of rolling out a national testing action plan, for instance. Well, because we've had no federal leadership on this during this pandemic, the fact that we've had to kind of scramble to find plans to do things where governors are basically going in on their own, there have been foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, like the American Enterprise Institute, like, um, like my own think tank, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, that have had to fill that gap by developing plans to think about how we move forward. This pandemic touched every American 
and it's going to leave a mark. And hopefully that will galvanize the public to start thinking about pandemic preparedness as something they want to ask their elected officials about. What is your plan for pandemic preparedness? How would you improve the CDC's function? How would you improve the way the, the National Security Council deals with pandemics? I think that we're going to have an opportunity here to fix things in a way that we haven't for prior infectious disease emergencies because this one is so much bigger in scale and this was so disruptive to every person's life that they need to start to demand that we have competence in our ability to respond to pandemics because the cost of preparing for pandemics pales in comparison to the cost that we're all now suffering. Yeah, it's a fantastic point because personally, I'm very used to talking about resilience in a climate change context uh, and, and sort of thinking about policy uh, outside of the U.S., in the U.S., around that. Um, but, but it's interesting to think if pandemic preparedness becomes a real electoral issue and what, you know, the, a strong platform around that issue would look like. What would it look like? I do think it first comes from the recognition that pandemics are unique, that their threat is not going away, and that they have these cascading impacts that affect the entire world and entire economies. And the other recognition is the fact that if this is a communicable disease, especially those of, the, of respiratory transmission form, that no country will be safe if there is something new spreading within its borders, that these get exported very quickly and can engulf the world. And what I think it has to, to be is that you really have to have the WHO emboldened where they are less susceptible to political pressure and they are completely susceptible to political pressure currently. Uh, obviously, one great example of is the fact that, that uh, Taiwan is not allowed to be in the World Health Organization, not for any bad action they took, but because China does not want Taiwan in the World Health Organization. So you, you have to say all countries need to be included in this. They all have to talk about what infectious diseases are going on, and they all have to have the ability to do the, the basics, identify and report these infections. And some of that is part of the global health security agenda that was started by President Obama. I think that needs to scale. And you also have to have leadership at the White House, at the National Security Council level, looking at pandemic threats that can help coordinate responses and the intelligence gathering from the CDC and, and other agencies so that you have the, a direct line to the top levels of government. I think that's what you have to, to do. And you have to fund it sustainably in a way that doesn't go up and down when there's a crisis, that stays at a, at a level that's sufficient that we can actually build these programs out, that you can hire people, that you don't have to worry about, can you replenish the strategic national stockpile or can you not? We really have to think about this the way we think about the, the Department of Defense budget, even though this will be much lower, but that type of paradigm where you're thinking about this as a national security threat and actually funding it and acting as if it is a national security threat. From a policy perspective, how do you think about the, the urgency to sort of contain outbreaks like COVID-19? I, I think uh, what I'm talking about specifically is around contract tra tracing apps. They've worked for Asian countries. Uh, in fact, in the NHS in the UK, uh, we're trialing one right now. But the, you know, the downside is you need 50 to 60% participation rates. Uh, how do you see the technological need for better data on diseases progressing, given, I guess, the traditional pushback when it comes to the privacy rights? I do think that we need to have force multipliers for our health departments. They are, as I said earlier, very under-resourced, and contact tracing can be very resource-intensive. So if they can use 
mobile phone apps in order to make it much easier, I think that's great. I think it has to be voluntary because there are concerns about privacy, but I, for one, am not really concerned about the privacy issues because the way the apps are designed really are not giving away much more data than you are already giving away to people, and it's going to be completely optional. So I do think that the more people that use those apps, the easier it makes our job as public health people to try and control these outbreaks and that makes you in the end safer from these outbreaks and controls them much, much quicker. So I do think that using technological apps, and we have all of those apps already, there's not anything magical about them. They're not any, there's not anything that really needs to be done differently than what we're already doing with all of our social media apps and, and location sharing. So I don't think it's that big of a deal, uh, but I do think it needs to be voluntary because there are going to be people that are gonna bring up privacy concerns and, and that's their right. And so last question, as a student of pandemic history, is the politicization of pandemics an inevitability? And I, I guess I'm thinking the assertions that it's the Wuhan or Chinese virus currently. In the 1830s, it was the Asiatic cholera. In 1957, it was Asian flu. And, and, and certainly there was the partisanship around the U.S. Ebola response uh, during the Obama administration. Unfortunately, yes. I think that politicization of infectious disease outbreaks is with us forever. It has been with us forever. This isn't something new in 2020. This has been going on basically since, you know, the plague of Athens or even before that. So this is something that we, we unfortunately have to deal with. And the more politicization that happens, the harder it makes everyone else's job in trying to respond to that. The more it spawns conspiracy theories. Um, even if you go back to the plague of Athens, there's conspiracy theories that the Spartans did it. Um, that they poisoned the wells there. So there's lots of things that have happened because of politicization. So that's nothing new. It just makes it much more harder to get to the truth and to get actionable public health information to the public. And, and unfortunately, it's gotten worse, I think, um, especially with during this pandemic. I think it's become very hard to actually have an objective opinion without being pigeonholed into one side or the other because politics have um, engulfed the entire response as both sides see this as an opportunity uh, to go after the other side, at least in the United States, that's been the case. And it's really made it very difficult to have any type of voice uh, and be interpreted uh, on exactly uh, be interpreted based on what you're actually saying rather than where it fits into some collective tribe that people are trying to place you into. It's important to remember that this pandemic wasn't something that came from the blue, that it wasn't just something that magically appeared. This was something that was predictable. People had been tracking coronaviruses since 2003, and now here we are 17 years later without a coronavirus antiviral, without a coronavirus vaccine. And with uh, a situation around the world where we're forced to use very blunt tools like economic shutdowns because we were unwilling to develop the precise tools or implement the precise plans that we had made. And th this situation that we're in is putting us in a horrible position where the choice is economic shutdowns forever or we have people die. And I think that that choice is a false choice that, that we're, we've been put into because of a failure of imagination, a failure to actually look at the reality of the situation back in November, December, January, and basically evasion by some of our top leaders. And I think that that needs to be a priority for people to, to, to bring to the attention of policymakers that this was the result of not the virus, but our reaction to the virus. So, look, it's been fascinating to walk through the context of pandemics where we stand on COVID-19 right now, the factors we need to think about for building better preparedness and stronger resilience, and the implications for how this may reset our policy and political expectations going forward. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell. 
co-head of Responsible Investment at Mann Group, here today with Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Many thanks, Amish. Thanks for having me. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.